Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Joshua McNichols. And I'm Monica Nicholsberg. We are KUOW's economy team, and you're listening to Booming, stories from a city that almost never stops growing. Today, you've probably heard some version of this. Kids these days just don't want to work anymore. Yeah, I hear that all the time. Whatever happened to hard work, right? Yep, exactly. New survey shows Gen Z leading the way in quiet quitting. Work ethic used to be a virtue. And it's all over TikTok. How am I expected to work a nine to five every single day when I have not done eight hours of anything in the last four years? Immediately, no. Decline. I'm not working through lunch. So are the older generations right? The next generation of workers is just kind of lazy? Not exactly. We surveyed more than 100 workers of all ages about their attitudes toward work. And while it's true that Gen Z and millennials have a really different perspective, their reasons might surprise you. And those reasons have huge implications for the health of our economy. That's coming up. But first, Joshua, tell me what you've been working on this week. Well, we all know that downtown Seattle has been really struggling since the pandemic, and it can feel kind of dead and empty sometimes, which is not good for, you know, getting more people to come down. It's not good for businesses downtown. So the mayor has made it his personal mission to revive downtown Seattle. We're seven months into his revitalization plan, but when I go downtown, I still see a lot of vacant storefronts. Yeah, me too. And it seems like it should be an opportunity, right? Because... This used to be really expensive retail space, if you could even get it. Like, downtown used to be a hot commodity. Is anybody trying to seize on this opportunity? Yes, and that's where it gets kind of exciting. We're starting to see pop-up shops and artists and other creative types move into some of those empty spaces because they can afford them now or, you know, because the city is encouraging more kinds of things to go in those spaces. For example, there used to be a U.S. bank on a corner in Pioneer Square. And, you know, it's this big corporate-looking bank, two stories tall. They've got big plate glass windows on the street. But now when you walk by, it's not, you know, people going to the bank inside. It's people building these giant sculptures. You know, so when I saw this from the street, I had to go inside and ask them about it. It's around 19 feet tall. And then this canvas sail-looking thing is going to be hoisted up onto it to create this parabolic roof structure. So that person you hear talking, that's Sierra Morin, and she's an employee of the architecture firm LMN, and they build all their models here. It's sort of their workshop. But now they have more space to build big experimental stuff for design festivals, like that sculpture that she was talking about was for the Pioneer Square Art Walk. That's cool. And it seems like a win-win because these are spaces that aren't being used right now. But... Is this enough to save downtown? I imagine the bank probably brought more people in. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, while they're working on stuff, sometimes people will walk in off the street and be like, where do I deposit my check? (laughs) Well, that's kind of an opportunity, too, right? They should say, support the arts. We're taking donations. Yeah. LMN's doing pretty well. You know, they've got Amazon as a client. So (laughs) but still, you know, a a lot of these pop up shops that are moving into these vacant storefronts, they're just open like Wednesday through Friday or Wednesday through Sunday. So. This is not a 24-7 city yet. You know, we've still got a big pit to crawl out of before we're anywhere back to normal. Yeah. 
Well, downtown is definitely something that we're going to keep an eye on in this podcast because it's such a key job center in our region. But today's main story is about a different aspect of work, specifically why workers under 35 are less inclined to go above and beyond at work and why that affects all of our jobs. That's coming up after the break. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. By all means, move at a glacial pace. You know how that thrills me. Okay, Monica, so you recently surveyed a whole bunch of people from different generations and heard how they feel about work. And from what I've heard, it yielded some surprising results. Yeah. I mean, at first, the results seemed like they reinforced this stereotype that younger people just aren't as invested in their jobs. But once I started actually talking with some of these workers, I realized their reasons are a lot more complicated than we give them credit for. Okay, what made you want to do this survey in the first place? Well, we have a labor shortage, you may have heard. And there's this knee-jerk reaction among some people to just blame younger workers for not wanting to work. We've all seen these headlines like, nobody wants to work anymore. Whatever happened to hustle? What about grind culture? Oh, millennials always eating avocado toast and complaining about work, right? And that itself actually isn't very interesting to me. I think older generations dunking on young people as lazy is not anything new. It's kind of the back in my day, we knew the meaning of hard work. (laughs) But, you know, based on my conversations with millennials and Gen Z workers, I suspected there was something more nuanced and interesting happening here. And I wanted some data to back that up. Okay, who'd you hear from? We heard from 110 people, ranging from 18 to over 65. Uh, A lot of them are KUOW listeners, so that's a bit of a caveat here. You know, they do have some connection to us, most likely. And they worked in a variety of jobs. Okay, so what surprised you the most? So I asked this question, in your job, your goal is to. And the majority in every single generation said, exceed expectations at work. Okay. Except for the youngest generation. Oh, Workers under 34 said their goal is just to meet expectations at work. And this actually tracks with what we're seeing in national surveys. Interesting. Okay. What does exceeding expectations actually mean versus just meeting expectations? Is that like when I roll out of bed in the morning and check Slack first thing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we didn't uh, put that in the survey, but in conversations I had with people, to them it meant like working nights or weekends or doing tasks that are outside of their job description. Right. There are tons of TikToks making fun of Gen Z and millennials for this. Literally, why are they scheduling it during my lunch hour? Oh my God, that's literally the one hour I get to myself. So there's this big shift happening. Millennials and Gen Z don't think they should be doing more than the jobs they were hired for. It's giving toxic, it's giving no work-life balance. No, I'm going to go enjoy my lunch. I guess my first question is why? So I think there are a few key things happening here. One, this is not about laziness. Okay. It's about making a statement. Two, this generation places a much higher premium on work-life balance than previous ones. And three, they've got a pretty grim view of the future, and that's demotivating. Okay, tell me more about this idea of making a statement by working less. 
So this came up in conversations I had with folks who participated in the survey. We ran this focus group. Uh, (laughs) Fittingly, none of the Gen Z participants showed up. Oh, sick burn. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're making a statement toward me. Uh, No, I I followed up with them, though, and they were very candid. Um, And uh, just a note that we're only using first names for people so they could talk candidly about their jobs. Okay. So I talked to Maya. She's 28. She works for a nonprofit. She's in a union, and she feels really inspired by the labor movement, which is really having this revival among young people. She said that setting boundaries at work is a way of showing solidarity with her coworkers. If we're not communicating clearly when something feels like out of scope of our work or that we need to be compensated fairly for work that we're being expected to do, that's not just for ourselves, but it's also for each other because not doing that, not drawing that boundary can undermine other people that we work with and their ability to draw that boundary or get compensated fairly as well. So she's really making a point of not exceeding expectations in solidarity with her other coworkers. She talked about how she's in a pretty good place and not everyone is. And so she's able to push back when she's asked to do something outside the scope of her job. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that you tie this with the sort of revival of labor because it, it really seems to be about what is expected of us from sort of top down and what we expect to get in return, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And this is something that's really resonating with young people, in part because they're also not necessarily getting the same value proposition from their employer. Maya said that she doesn't always feel like her extra work is valued because she found out a while back that her salary is lower than some of her coworkers doing similar jobs. Yeah. I'm thinking of just how much economic inequality there is in the world right now, too, and how, you know, I can kind of understand why somebody might feel sensitive to that, you know? Yeah. She basically said, you're getting a good deal from me. Like, if you're going to give me the bare minimum, I'm going to give you the bare minimum. And she actually recently did start doing some tasks outside of her job description that she wouldn't do before. But that's only because she got promoted and they became part of her job description, which is a totally different dynamic than the older generations we talked to. Uh, There was one woman, Eileen, she's a baby boomer, and she was in the focus group. And this is how she put it. It was kind of expected that you went outside your job description because when it came to review time, they had a a five-point scale. And three was meets expectations. So if you wanted, you know, any kind of a race, you had to, you know, be a four or five, which was exceeds expectations. And then I forget what five was, walks on water or something. (laughs) So to older generations, going above and beyond is the path to getting a promotion. And, you know, I'm not that much older. I'm a millennial, but I've certainly felt this way, too. But for younger generations like Maya, if you want extra effort, you've got to pay for that up front. And, you know, younger people also have more means of communication with each other, perhaps, than older generations did. So maybe they're more aware and can work together to understand where they might have shared interests. Yeah, absolutely. They have better ways to communicate. And there's also an ideological shift where they're more encouraging of each other to be transparent about things like salary, which is what happened with Maya. One other thing that came up with this generation is they're much more dedicated to work-life balance than previous ones. Why is that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I have some theories. I think one factor is the pandemic. That really shifted how all of us see our jobs and really allowed us to bring more of our personal lives and our personal selves into the workplace. 
I also think that they're just not that optimistic that grinding now is going to pay off later. They've seen in their parents the negative impacts of that kind of hustle culture that dominated so many previous generations. And this is something I heard from Jade. She is 22. She works in a private school admissions office. And this is what she had to say about it. I refuse to most times even check my work email when I'm not um, on the clock. Definitely won't respond to anything unless someone is dying, but that does not happen at my job, really. So there is a true like boundary between my work and my personal life. And I really never let those bleed into each other. So she's really intentional about this because she saw how hard her parents were grinding all the time at work when she was growing up. I feel like I didn't really grow up seeing my parents having healthy boundaries between work and, and personal, especially my father. If that's what success means, then I, that's not what I want, to be honest. Like, that's not what success looks like to me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm watching as my kid struggles with school right now, you know, and I'm thinking, like, I, I love my job. I'm kind of driven by parts of my job. But I also realize it comes at a cost if I spend too long at work and don't get home and, like, I'm not able to be supportive of my kids, you know. Yeah, I identify with this kind of from the other end. I'm a millennial, I guess a youngish millennial. And my parents had really powerful careers and worked really, really hard. And, you know, I do think that they are reaping the benefits of that, but I'm not sure that those benefits still exist, especially for people younger than me. Yeah, we just put my parents into a, uh, you know, retirement community and it's just kind of drawing down their savings. And we kind of realize, like, yeah, we're never going to be able to do this for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. And it's even more severe for younger people. They see they're reading those tea leaves. That's why this is kind of a new phenomenon. This idea of really defending your work-life balance is not something that Eileen, for example, experienced as a baby boomer. I wanted to address the concept of work-life balance, because for most of my career, that was not a thing. So what's changed? Well, there are some of the factors we've talked about already, but I think one of the biggest ones is that the long-term payoffs for working this hard early in your career just are not what they used to be. Young people are becoming less optimistic that the investment's going to pay off. And they kind of have a point, right? Like the chances of their being able to buy a house or afford kids or other goals to retire comfortably feel really remote. Many people of my generation, myself included, don't have any faith in that model anymore. That was Maya. And Jade said something similar. If I were to be working that much and... and if it would ever pay off for me to be able to buy a house anywhere around here or maybe anywhere that's not like Kansas. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's like promising enough to to bet on it. Yeah. This goes back to the lack of affordable housing in the Seattle area that we talked about in the last episode. Yeah, this is a huge thing that lives in the psyche of young people, because when you think about like the goal, the American dream, it's like to grow up, to have a house. And if that most fundamental promise that's being offered in exchange for working really hard doesn't feel like it's honest anymore, then why would you work that hard? So what needs to change in order for, you know, these young workers to feel more invested? 
Well, they mentioned a few things that could, I think, maybe make some changes at the margins. The four-day work week was very popular, not just with young people, with everyone. Um, You know, some different benefits, flexibility. These are things that they want. Um, The idea of employee ownership is really popular, too. Employee ownership? Yeah. So this is like instead of having somebody who owns your company and a boss – The employees all own an equal share of the company and they make decisions together. And that can be very motivating. I actually saw this in practice at a bar in Rainier Beach called Jude's. It's an employee-owned co-op. And I did some reporting there a few months ago because I wanted to find out um, at the beginning of the labor shortage what might encourage workers to come back in an industry like hospitality. I think certainly my reason for wanting to stay here longer than I had originally thought was because this is somewhere that I can invest. That was Libby Hughes. They caught up with me while they were actually bartending at Jude's. And I think this idea of a place to invest really resonates with young people who are crushed by student loans, who don't think that they can invest in a home, but who do still have that fundamental desire to plan for a better future. You know, I I do have a question for you about this because... In in sort of the start of the segment, we were talking about how people maybe they they want a better work life balance, right? And so and and because there's things outside of their work that is part of their identity and part of how they want to spend their time. And here we've got a way for people to feel more invested in work. But is that what people actually want, or do they want to be like you know work is over here and I keep it in this box, and the rest of my time is just for me, you know, and my family and friends. It almost feels like an older generation way to sort of view how you view your work as sort of at the center of your social life in some way. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I do think that it is a departure among millennials and Gen Z that they don't necessarily feel like they need to get everything from their job that previous generations did. Because frankly, from a financial standpoint, they're not getting everything from their jobs that previous generations did. Yeah, I do think that some of these changes could make them feel better about their jobs. But I think you're right. I don't think that we're ever going to get to a point where younger generations feel as compelled as previous ones to go above and beyond. Because like we said, this is ultimately a philosophy. It's an ideological choice. You know, and and ultimately, everybody's got to make that decision for themselves. I mean, I, I, it, I find it a little bit distasteful when when one generation sort of moralizes about the way another generation is making that choice. And, you know, as, as somebody with kids who make different choices than than I would, I feel like um, I, I kind of need to give them the benefit of the doubt to be the best interpreters of what they need in their generation this moment in time. Yeah, I totally agree. Only they know what it's like to go through what they've gone through. But I do think that if this change is here to stay, it's important that we just all wrap our heads around it because there's a labor shortage. And you know what groups have the most workers? Millennials and Gen Z. They just became bigger than any other demographic. So we got to figure out what they want if we want them to come work at the jobs that we have. We need to know how to work with them, how to hire them, how to manage them if we want to keep our economy strong. All right. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, happy to. Coming up next, the end game. I like that. (laughs) Okay, are you ready to play? I'm ready. Okay, you remember how in the first segment we talked about, you know, downtown's economic health, right? Right. And the mayor's plan to revitalize it. Well, you got this program where the Seattle government's trying to encourage small shops to move into these vacant storefronts. It's called Seattle Restored. Now, uh, it's been, you know, kind of successful in filling vacant storefronts. 
Now, I'm going to list off to you one, two, three, four, five businesses that have moved into these, and one of them is fake. And you have to guess which one is fake. Okay, it's like two truths and a lie. That's right. Yeah. Okay, the first one is a hat maker. You thought nobody was making hats anymore, but they are. They're moving into one of these vacant storefronts. Second one is an African art gallery, and they show, you know, contemporary African art, but also some, like, historic artifacts to try to give you a sense of the context and the history of that art. Uh, The third is a counter offering old-style lunches in metal lunchboxes for construction workers, but the downside is that they cost $20 each. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And next is a podcast studio, you know, because downtown's more quiet than it used to be. So maybe it's a perfect place for a quiet recording studio. I think it's the podcast studio. I, I got, don't I got one more. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I can't count. <laughs> okay. And the last one is a place that offers chocolate tastings as a way of helping companies manage change. You know, think we're going to have layoffs. Let's talk about healing from that over chocolate. Oh, my God. I think people would rather have severance than chocolate. But (laughs) I think the podcast studio is the fake one. Why is that? Because they're all so specific that they would be, I mean, they'd be very creative lies to make up. And maybe I'd have to reassess my uh, interpretation of you as a purely honest person, Joshua. But (laughs) I think the podcast studio, like, that's obvious, right? We're in a podcast studio right now. Right. No, actually, the fake one is the counter offering old style lunchboxes and metal lunch pails for construction workers. I really wanted that one to be true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, I spoke to one of the real uh, shop owners, this person who runs the African art gallery. Her name is Avery Barnes, and the gallery is called Taswira. And this is what she said about being in that space downtown. When I see people laughing in a space, and you know, especially with our exhibit now, we're featuring an artist um, all the way from Lagos, and he is just globally renowned. And this is the first time that he's exhibiting his work, being represented by a gallery in America, being able to to see people thrive and and laugh. That's what it's all about. That's really cool. I love seeing a little bit more diversity down there because I have to say, when I've been reporting downtown, it doesn't feel like a vibrant cultural center. Yeah, and that's actually one sort of silver lining coming out of this. You, you know, these vacancies downtown, there was the Seattle Restored program is trying to bring in, you know, almost all the businesses are women-owned or black-owned or Latina-owned. They're really trying to bring back access to downtown for people who maybe couldn't afford it before or just could were out-competed for space by a companies before. You'll have to see it. Okay, booming listeners, do you have any questions about the economy that you want us to look into? Do you have any stories about the economy that you want us to be aware of? If you do, we'd love to hear from you. We are still a brand new baby podcast, so we don't have our booming email set up yet, but (laughs) you can find Joshua and my email addresses on our website. So send us a note. That's it for booming. Our producer is Lucy Suchek. Our editor is Carol Smith. I'm Joshua McNichols. And I'm Monica Nicholsberg. And we'll catch you next time.